forgive me, darlings, for I have sinned. Um, it has been two weeks since we last put out a podcast episode. Um, now, there are many reasons um, why we couldn't get one out last week, but we are back for you now. Sometimes life just really gets a bit out of control. And in that situation, it just seems only sensible that what has to give is the podcast, since we know that you would rather have a good episode than, you know, some crap that we might cobble together when we're overwhelmed and stressed. So we thought, OK, we'll wait till this week. Um I should also probably apologise in advance because I've just recorded a ton of stuff, um, all of my segments, and uh, there were upload issues and everything has disappeared and I have to do it again. And sometimes, you know, we have one good take in us, don't we? So we'll just really see where my energy levels go for the rest of my contribution to this episode. But I do hope that you enjoy it. Anyway, um, now just a warning in advance. Next week, we will be doing our special Q&A episode just like we did last season. So you can start getting your questions into us. We've had quite a few juicy ones already. Um, yes, do get those into us at Instagram, on Instagram at fachmylifepod, um, via email at fachmylifepod at gmail.com or on Twitter at fachpod. And you can really ask us anything. No question is too silly. Um, so just do go ahead. Now today, as we've been talking about gatekeepers all season... We'll be asking ourselves today, what does that really mean? We all know about, you know, the powerful conductors, the powerful singers, the powerful this, the powerful that. But what about the people whose whose roles are a little bit more slippery, shall we say, um, who kind of contribute, but we don't really understand their role and yet they seem to have an inordinate amount of power. Now, there does seem to be uh, this sort of idea that, you know, if a singer isn't making it or has sort of stumbling blocks in their career, that, you know, they're a terrible singer and the all musical people who work with them must hate them. But that is really, really not the case. Now, here to start us off talking about that is Adele, and I'll be back shortly. Gatekeeper seems to be a word that's coming out more and more over time in our industry. And to be honest, in most competitive industries, as millennials and Gen Z youths realise that we've been dealt a slightly shit hand in life and that despite being the most educated generation, the opportunities that we crave were significantly easier for older generations to walk into. Opera perhaps has more gatekeepers and more layers of gatekeeping than a lot of other industries, just as we have ever more layers of education added for young singers before we can expect to be bloody paid for anything, but I digress. So who are we talking about now? Well, we all know about the conductors and music directors, the creepy famous singers who wield an unreasonable amount of power, those teachers at conservatoires who can seemingly decide the fates of students who have nothing to do with them and who gets what, etc, etc. But do we talk enough about the administrators and board members? The people whose roles are a bit more ambiguous than, for example, directing the production or giving a masterclass. Often we're not quite sure what they do, but they can have a lot of sway in the decision-making processes. With the opera industry, a tactic that has worked quite well has been to subliminally convince us singers that our problem is with each other. We know there are more singers than ever before, and the reasons for that are numerous and complex. We live in a much more international world now, for one. Well, 
apart from this last year. And that is a good thing. Plus, I suppose with the advancements in technology, more of us were able to consume a lot more of operatic content, not just to restrict it to what we could actually see live and therefore were perhaps more disposed to being really consumed by it. And so we had more tools at our disposal to actually look into this as a possible career path in the first place. We have spoken about the rhetoric of how many singers there are these days and how that rhetoric is weaponized against us, whether it's used in rejection emails to basically imply that we're a mere drop in the ocean and cannot possibly be spared three minutes of a casting panel's listening time when they have hundreds of people to listen to at this audition, or whether it's to discourage us from asking to be paid or frankly asking for us for anything in this industry because we can be replaced at the drop of a hat. But here's the thing, all the emphasis on the difficulty these days being with the numbers of singers implies that the buck stops with us. Those who are good can have the career that they deserve if 85% of the other singers just gave up and go away. And that's the reason that you can't make it in this industry if the industry considers you overweight or if you're an ethnic minority it's not because of gatekeepers with toxic ideals deciding that they only want to see their own white supremacist puritanical idea of a sexually attractive body type body type on stage it's because of all those pesky other singers (laughs) so sorry there's nothing anyone can do fight the death among yourselves so yes there are a lot of us But what that actually means is that not everyone can have the precise pipeline career that industry gatekeepers have essentially invented over time. Does it mean that 90% of singers have to accept that they will have no career at all? Fuck no. Roz and I have really realised this year that the gatekeepers would love us all to think that it's their way or no way. And since their way is precisely designed to accommodate about 3% of singers who make it to a professional level, if that... The messaging is that if they are not interested in us, we should quit singing and do something completely different. But as we've discussed before, it really doesn't have to be like that. The career of a singer can be such a beautiful, rich tapestry, as Dr. Christine Jobson just exemplified perfectly in her amazing interview with Ros last episode. And we are all about encouraging you to take control. Now, when you consider that a lot of the pushbacks are coming from administrators, essentially people who do not do any actual singing, who have maybe never sung a note or played an instrument in their life, do you still feel that their opinion on you versus whoever they've decided to push on to the stage is backed up by, in- by enough genuine expertise so as to reflect accurately on your quality as a performer? Darling, I really hope you don't. You have something to offer. And if you're not their cup of tea, then most of the time, honestly, that just means you've just been freed up from working, I don't know, a 70 hour week, well below minimum wage whilst paying double rent in a foreign city. We know this might seem all well and good for us to say, but the arts is undergoing a change and you don't have to stick to this unfulfilling rat race or at the very least, you don't have to believe the lie that you you and your art don't matter based on the opinion of an administrator. Now, I would like to talk about a really inspirational social media post that we came across this week. Um, And I think that so much of what is mentioned and covered in this post and the sort of thinking points that it really inspires relates back to what Adele was just uh, talking about with gatekeepers. Um, 
Now, this post, um, and I think that you should all check it out for yourselves, so I will give you the Instagram handle. It's Taylor Gonzaga, the beautiful soprano, um, and the handle is Gonzaga Tay. Um, so G-O-N-Z-A-G-A-T-A-Y. Um, anyway, so she's done like um, a series of slides with advice I am glad I didn't take as an emerging opera singer. And it was so interesting and just came at like the perfect time um, for Adele and I to read because, I mean, we're not robots, you know. Yes, we've really... Um, uncovered a lot of kind of kick-ass we don't give a fuck energy from doing this podcast but of course there are still those kind of wobble moments where it's like well I've never been taken in this kind of thing so that must mean that the past decade of my life has been a waste and you know I'm just terrible Um, when actually it's just really not the case at all and it's posts like this that just really make you reflect again on your life and realise aha no this lady is right anyway Um, So some of the advice, it's just really interesting. And I think that um, it will be things that all of us have heard at some point um, during our journeys as singers. And I think what what I really got to questioning when I read through this stuff, as it all looked so familiar to me, is like, who benefits from giving us this advice? Is it genuinely well-meaning? Because I suppose some of it might be, but I really think a lot of it is not. So, okay, the first thing is, um, if you get married at this age, you will lose momentum and not be successful. And Taylor says, nope, married the love of my life and now I have the most incredible support system, a teammate and a partner, so I do not have to go this path alone. Supportive partners are wonderful for singers. And, you know, it was so interesting to read that because that's definitely something that resonates with both Adele and I. Um, There were times earlier in our careers that it's like, oh, well, you know, obviously, who cares about relationships? We'll just be focusing on this path. So there's so much this idea is sold to us that you have to be married to your art or at least be okay with the idea of just being married to your art if you're a true artist. Um, And it's like, you know, our relationships are basically the basis of what we have to inspire us to express ourselves if we don't have relationships with anybody, then what are we as an artist? What do we have to express? And forgetting all of that, just why should we have to walk this path alone? What is so noble about that? Um, You know, if obviously everyone is entitled to choose to be single, absolutely all the single ladies. But um, if we don't, however, if there is somebody um, and if you do have a beautiful relationship, then you know, what is wrong with committing um, a chunk of your <laughs> of yourself to that? What is wrong with actually deciding to walk this path with someone? Um, it's just very interesting that the, the sort of industry has been turned into this thing that is such a difficult path for young singers. You know, we just, that it's like everybody wants to not give us any money. Everybody wants to make it really, um, really competitive for every single opportunity. And then at the same time, it's like, oh, yeah, but, you know, you you don't need a relationship to help you through this. Um, so, yeah, I just I found that really interesting. And of course, not everybody gives that advice. But um, but, you know, it has been said to me um, at several times in my sort of early career as well. And I just yeah, I, I think actually in a healthy relationship you're uplifting each other and you're encouraging each other in the pursuit of your goals and you're making the pursuit of those goals a more bearable process for each other um and that well that's how it should ideally be 
Um, and so I just think that that can only be a good thing. And I'm like, really, what's the benefit from encouraging people away from that? Um, so anyway, and then there's um, the advice she was given that you have to go to the big name school. And she says, nope, um, got a TA to a smaller university program for my master's, learned just as much as my peers from other schools and found an awesome teacher finished with no debt. Don't feel at a disadvantage as at all. My background is as unique as me. And um, I thought that was great, too, because it's like, who benefits, again, from saying that only certain schools are worth the time of day? Um, I would say that who benefits are those schools themselves. And, you know, it's like they stand to make a ton of money by basically perpetuating the narrative that they're the only places worth having an education. Um, Yeah absurd anyway and then another one have a backup career outside of music i think you're good but i don't believe in your industry and she says nah i just decided to be multi-passionate within my field and diversify my skills now i get to do a variety of work from directing and producing to teaching to performing and adele and i have spoken about this before and i think it's such an important one it's it's almost sort of too convenient to sell the message that It's either the incredibly narrow pipeline, which like, you know, 2% or 3% of people will like, if that will ever fully complete in a sense, in like the most traditional sense, um, that it's either that or it's quit singing entirely and do something else. You know, why does it have to be the pipeline or no line (laughs) Um, when actually there's such a rich tapestry of things that we can do within the arts? Um, And I think that actually it's precisely that attitude of like the backup plan for when you fail. And none of us want to admit, yeah, oh, we might fail because we don't, you know, nobody wants to think that... um, that that they might have wasted their time or whatever but it's like it's not failing to just sort of slightly pivot diversify branch out who actually benefits from us all thinking that we have to like stay in this rigid system of paying for application fees for certain auditions and paying to have this made and paying to have that made and spending a shit ton of money and all of our time and giving our ear and just taking um, blindly the feedback of a certain number of gatekeepers. If we, if we are made to believe that that is the only way of having a singing career, then we're all going to remain stuck in that system. However, it's not the only way of having a singing career. Um, and there is a much more diverse, beautiful way of having a singing career. Um, so basically this idea that, you know, it's um, the career or the backup career. Um, I think that that really only harms artists and helps um, gatekeepers in this sort of pipeline Um, because once we all realise that actually we have a bit more power and agency than they might like us to believe, well, we're going to stop paying those pesky application fees, aren't we? Um, And then suddenly there's, you know, they'll have to do something else to come up with money. Um, Yeah, so I just thought that that was a really interesting point. Um, And then, yeah, there's there's quite a few other really interesting things. And just one last one that I will touch on is... um you are a soubrette and sopranos are a dime a dozen. So you have to be a finished product by 25 or you won't have a career. She says, nope, 
I was told this at 20, only two years into my classical training. I am no longer singing soubrette repertoire and my voice is still growing. I've accepted that I'll never be a finished product because I'm not a thing. I'm a human. I'll always be learning and being a soprano is a blessing, not a curse. Being authentic helps me find my way, not fitting into a box other people think is marketable. I feel like this relates back so much um, to what Adele was um, was talking about that basically they've sort of weaponized this idea of how many of us there are, particularly sopranos. I mean, we, we all know, don't we, girls, that the whole thing is... It's this sort of narrative of like, there are hundreds of you, the world needs another soprano, like it needs a hole in the head. So, you know, just like pretend to be a mezzo if you want a career and like even then it's still going to be tough and blah, blah, blah. They want us to kind of believe that it's sort of a curse to be what is actually one of the most incredible things that a human can be. (laughs) Um, And that is a soprano, being able to use your voice to, um, to such incredible breathtaking extremes. So, yeah, it's it's really this thing telling us that we're a dime a dozen. That's just constant subliminal messaging, confidence knocking. Who does it help? It doesn't help any of us. Um, I also really don't understand this need to kind of box every singer in by like their mid-twenties and just act as though that's when the voice is done and that's when they should be a finished product. When we know that, especially for larger repertoire, the voice keeps ripening, keeps maturing, that's if you're using it, um, because, you know, you have to be given opportunities to use it on the reg and you can't just be like, I'm just going to chill at home until I'm 40 and then I think I'll be ready for some Wagner. Um, You know, we have to kind of keep those muscles working. Um, So we know that the voice, even for light voices, the voice is not actually done at 25. But there just seems to be this really bizarre obsession with boxing us all in around that age. Um, Yeah, I mean, what do you guys think? I just, it is really bizarre to me how ageist this profession is becoming. Um, and, and I mean, it's not even an ageist that particularly helps the younger side either, because it's basically just using people. Um, and it, it's all about like, oh, let's get the cheapest possible option and then we'll throw that girl out as well. And then we'll just get another young one who will take like, you know, below minimum wage or no money for this production. So it's not really about um, about even helping younger artists. It's just sort of implying that, I don't know, that you're your worth has a sell-by date on it, when actually, particularly for operatic voices, the opposite is true. Um, So yeah, and I just think it was such a worthwhile post. I think it really ties in to this... um, to this sort of decided, predetermined path that um, that gatekeepers always try to convince us of and that I think a lot of us have woken up from during the pandemic. Um, what do you guys think about all of this? For me, it really helped. Go and uh, check out this post. Um, and uh, yeah, let us know what you think as well and maybe what advice you've been given in the past that you're glad that you didn't take. I know that quite often um, we do get told these things that are just really like, I don't know, platitudes um, within the industry that we get really tired of hearing and we start to take them on. They become truths for us when actually if you take a step back and really think about it, it's like, who decided that this was the truth? It's all nonsense. Um, Yeah, so let us know what you think. 
So a little update this week from some current news items here in the UK. Um, bad news, once again, surprise, surprise, from our current government. Uh, yet more cuts to the education system. So funding cuts to go ahead for university arts courses in England despite opposition is the title of this article from The Guardian. So the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, has now said that the money will be put towards STEM and medicine courses. So... What really annoys me, I think, about this current news is that it's really difficult to argue that money being put into um, STEM, and I will explain what that is in a minute, and medicine courses is like that's a waste of money because obviously it's not. Obviously, that's really important. So they're saying that the money is going to be invested in other high cost subjects. So which that includes science, technology, engineering and mathematics. So that's STEM and uh, medicine and healthcare, which is in line with the government's priorities. Okay, fine. Obviously, this last year has shown us that those are areas that obviously need to have funding and obviously are really important to the ongoing health of the, you know, of the British public. However, it's the fact that this has been cut from the arts to be put into this it's it's not, it's just once again the government doesn't understand how much they're shooting themselves in the foot that taking money from, away from vocational subjects has a direct impact on mental health and on the ability of um children from low income backgrounds to you know pursue their dreams and pursue something that's actually really important to them and is really important to the culture of this com- this country. So I think my biggest problem with this kind of news item is that, as I said, it's, it's difficult to be like, well, that's really crap because obviously those things do need more funding, but they should not be taking the funding from the, you know, from, from the arts. And Naomi Pohl, we love Naomi, as we know, season one interviewee, um, the deputy general secretary of the Musicians Union said uh, the following on this news. So it says, this news is frankly the last straw for our members, many of whom have survived without any government support and barely any work for the past 18 months. Since we heard about these proposed cuts, there has been an enormous outpouring of fury and disappointment from our members and the wider music community. We must ensure that the talent pipeline doesn't dry up. Closing opportunities to learn music is short-sighted and at the end of the day, we'll all suffer. And truer words were never spoken. So I don't know if you've seen this article. I'm going to pop it into the link tree. It's not a very long article. It's just kind of a news update, not really an opinion piece or anything. Um, But we'd love to hear from you. Uh, do you think these cuts are viable? Do you think um they're going to long-term affect uh, um, access to music from for children from lower income backgrounds and uh yeah we just love to hear what you think about it more so i'm going to pop that link in the link tree and you can read that one for yourselves something that i found really interesting following all of the controversy surrounding diane zola who is the director of artistic administration at houston grand opera and an extremely powerful gatekeeper in the operatic industry especially for young artists um following the piece that middle class artists published about her history of sort of bullying many young artists um out of the industry with her body shaming comments and um and just sort of personal um 
sort of campaigns against certain people. Um, yeah, so something that I found really interesting was that the people leaping to her defence were not singers or other musicians being like, I worked with Diane Zola and she's an absolute babe. I don't know where this is coming from. Um, the people who were seen to defend her were other administrators um, and other board members of things. <laughs> um now, I won't use exact names because I'm not really sure of the, um, uh, I don't know, of the ethics of that, seeing as um, I found these comments from skulking around the internet. And um, I think that a lot of them have shared these posts on their private um, social media pages, on their personal social media pages, rather, because, I mean, nothing is really private when you're um, a public figure on social media, especially. But anyway... Um, there were some posts shared by other arts administrators of high-profile opera houses, shall we say, um, that were liked and um, applauded by members, board members of certain um, foundations that are a big deal within the operatic industry um, that were basically suggesting that like singers should just deal with this kind of stuff and um, that, you know, if they feel that they've been kept out of the industry for a certain reason, then, you know, maybe they need to just accept that actually other people were better than them. Um, and anyway, one comment that I saw talking about this said, it's arbitrary gatekeepers defending other arbitrary gatekeepers. And I just thought that is so spot on. It's people whose role we're not really sure of um, in in the sense of like the concrete creation process obviously we need administrators um but do they need to have as much power as they currently wield i'm really not sure that they do um i mean we've all well we've all, loads of us have been to competitions like the first round of a competition for example where like an all-star jury um is promised and in fact we find out that like a lot of the spots are taken up with people who are basically on the on a board of something on a cultural committee um who are essentially just rich people and are not um musicians they're not casting professionals um they're not agents or anything like that they're just essentially people who have money and are therefore given some kind of agency to decide which hard-working singers should um should end up on stage um now yeah i just so i just find that that comment of how it's arbitrary and then all of these sort of arbitrary people um are defending other arbitrary people um who probably really shouldn't have the kind of agency that they do within this industry um yeah so anyway i just i found that um that sort of take on things very interesting and i do find it interesting that it's not singers and musicians um who are leaping to the defence of um, certain arbitrary gatekeepers. Um, yeah, so if we look more into the sort of administrative um, board kind of side of things, when I was um, discussing with Dr. Christine Jobson what needs to be, uh, what, what would be the one thing that she would change overnight if she could change any one thing to make this industry um, more equitable, especially in terms of racial representation, but just a more equitable industry. She made the great point that we would need to look at who are on the boards for things. Um, 
and basically who has the the power in that sense in the the sort of donors administrative boards um the committees who make these decisions um who we don't really know who they are a lot of the time but we're always told oh we have to make these decisions because it's pleasing to the board well who's the board um and it just really got me thinking um especially about donors because i received um a couple of other messages that basically um were from singers who had kind of had it implied to them that the reason that they hadn't been picked for certain things was because the donors to the house wouldn't like it and um, would prefer a different type um, of singer. And you can imagine really what kind of type that is. Um, So it just really got me thinking that there has to be a more socialist way of collaborating with donors. Um, The way that it seems to work now quite often it's akin to like if you were to to give some money to a homeless person and then march them into the coffee shop and dictate what they order with the money that you've just given them donations to the arts really should be just that a donation it got me thinking um, about the way that things um, are done with crowdfunding systems. Now, I know that on a crowdfunder for like a new opera project or whatever, most of us are donating like five pounds, 10 pounds, 20 pounds. You know, we're not donating like a hundred grand um, or whatever large multiples these rich people donate. I don't really know. <laughs> but um, at the same time, what is Um, on offer when you donate to one of these things is first of all everybody who makes a donation however big or small gets some kind of recognition of that donation even if it is just um, a thank you email it's usually more than that it's usually your name mentioned in the program you might get sent um, a poster or a program or something that's signed from that production Um, if you don't donate more you might get seats or something like that so but the point is that usually in crowdfunding situations, basically everybody who donates is acknowledged. And the second point is that when you're donating to a crowdfunder for the arts, by and large, your donation is basically your gift to them for them to put on the art that they have in mind. It's not for you to then uh, give your money and then sort of strong arm what you expect then to see with that crowdfunded production. It's it's like, you know, we'll we'll send you a program, but we're not going to let you choose the whole fucking cast, you know. Um, So I just really think that there has to be something in that, um, that maybe opera companies have to pull back a little bit and maybe there has to be some way. It shouldn't have to be that you're incredibly wealthy to get on a culture committee onto a board. Um, Just as Dr. Christine was suggesting, like we have to find some kind of way for boards to really equally represent society how it actually looks rather than just you know a bunch of old rich white guys um and like one rich white woman who have decided that they want to see like young skinny white people on the stage and that like that's it and nothing else will do um do you know what I mean? I feel like there there has to be a way that um that you know we 
how, whether you have influence um, over the arts shouldn't just be down to how much money you have because none of us singers are going into singing for the money. Um, it shouldn't be about the money. We all understand that there has to be money and we're grateful for money that um, that gets donated to this process. But it shouldn't be that if you have money... Um, that you're able to decide how this industry looks. Um, so, yeah, basically, that's that's kind of my take on that. And um, I would be really interested to know what you guys think needs to happen with um, things like culture committees and boards um, and, you know, what kind of work we need to do to get um, equitable representation in arts administrator jobs as well. Um yeah, I just think it, we have to come away from this thing that like we're all bowing down to the richest donors all the time because then, you know, it also stifles the quality of the art that we can produce. By and large, they want to see the stuff that they've seen before. Um, and then, you know, it's like new work gets stifled, uh, new artists get stifled and it's just really that's going to bring the profession to a grinding halt um, more than anything else. So, yeah, perhaps then something where, um, you know, either no donors get a say or every donor gets some kind of say and it's all brought together in like maybe some kind of Zoom meeting and that's whether you've donated £10 or £10,000. Um, yeah, what do you guys think? I know... Um, it's it's sounding like quite an idealistic idea at the moment, um, not very fleshed out, but that's kind of where where I'm leaning with this whole gatekeeper issue. Um, and yeah, I think that that's basically the way that we're going to get new work out there, that we're going to get um, f the wide variety of performers that actually exist shown to us on the stage and that, you know, people are going to see themselves on stage. And that's the way that... Um, that this art form is actually going to live on into the future, not just rehashing the same things done by the same people over and over again. So yeah, let us know what you think. Get in touch. Darlings, that is all from us for today. Now, next week is our season finale of season three. Wow, cannot believe that. And we are bringing back um, a very special episode that we had in season two, which was question time. So basically send in your questions, please. We would love to hear from you. Questions, comments, just things you want us to talk about. It can be anything at all. So please let us know what you'd like us to talk about. Drop us a line at fuckmylifepod on Insta, at fuckpod on Twitter, and fuckmylifepod at gmail.com. And you bet that if we get another email from an administrator saying that there were just a hundred million sopranos and we're not good enough for their particular ideal of whatever an opera singer can be, should be, you can guarantee we'll be thinking, fuck right off. <laughs> <laughs>